0: Well, today we begin a new sermon series where we're going to be going through the New Testament book uh, called Philippians. It's Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians. It's, uh, it's a church that Paul dearly loved. He began that church. He planted it back in, they say, 51, 52 A.D. Um, the church is it's doing well. It's firing on all cylinders. Um, but Paul wants to spur them on in the gospel so that the gospel will take even deeper root in them. Throughout this entire letter, Paul encourages these Christians to grow in maturity. Why would he do that? Well, I think it's because all of us as Christians need to grow in maturity. We must not become satisfied with a partial Christ-likeness. But unfortunately, that can happen, can it? We want the gospel, but not all of it. We want the the gospel that saves us, but not the part that changes us, at least not changes us too much. One of my favorite New Testament scholars is D.A. Carson, and here's how he begins his commentary on on, uh, this letter to the Philippians. It's a little long, but listen. I would like to buy $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetedness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people But I myself don't want to love those from different different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. He goes on to say, for many confessing Christians, it's become more important to be comfortable and secure than to be self-sacrificing and giving. Three dollars worth of gospel, please, but no more. Now, Carson does go on to say that, of course, no one is so crass as to put it that way. But most of us has felt the temptation to opt for domesticated, a domesticated version of the gospel. In our letter today, in our in our passage that we're even studying this morning, Paul encourages the Philippians um, not to settle for a domesticated version of the gospel, but instead grow with joy. Today's sermon title is "Gospel Maturity." God's desire is that His people, His children, would grow up, that they would mature, and that we would live out our kingdom calling. Sounds like a lot. Thankfully, though, as we will see, our maturity is in God's powerful, loving hands. The passage we are looking at is Philippians chapter one, verses one through eleven. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your character Um, is revealed in scripture. More than that, your love and your um, care for your people as well. Uh, Open our minds and our eyes to this glorious truth that um, you are, uh, you've begun a good work in us, and you are carrying that out. And one day it will be full and complete. Uh, Help us to process that and desire this and uh, partner with your spirit to make this real in our lives, we pray. Amen. You know, last week, somebody commented on one of my family photos, and they said, Mark, they're all grown up. (laughs) And I looked at it, and then I saw, yeah, my girls are not quite all grown up, but they really are um, growing. And they're no longer like little tots or like little children. They're like growing up. They're maturing physically. Now... Becoming physically mature does not require a lot of effort, does it? At least not in the Western world. All, all you need is what? Access to food and water. And over time, you will physically mature into adulthood. But think about the other types of maturity. Some of the other types of maturity don't come all that easily to us. How many adults do you know that are fully grown and yet emotionally or relationally or intellectually they're immature? Immature. People who are quick to shift blame, or people who harbor petty jealousies, or people who come undone at the smallest of difficulties or hardships, people who hold you to a high standard but yet seem to have no standard for themselves. Physical maturity does not guarantee emotional um, or relational or intellectual maturity. Now, before we think that this sermon is about someone else, we need to remind ourselves that all of us, in some ways, in some areas, are undeveloped. Uh, We need to fight our tendency to settle in, to think, you know, I've gotten far enough. After all, God loves me. My sins are forgiven. And no one consciously thinks this way, but subconsciously we can live this way where we choose maintenance over maturity, where we settle in to a certain level of growth. Just give me a $3 gospel, we say. But it's not supposed to be this way, at least not for God's children. Paul tells the church in Philippi that God has begun a work in you and he will finish it. Look at verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, God has given you new life in Christ. And God will continue to do his good work in you. He will mature you to be more and more like Christ. This is a good work that God has begun, and it will continue in you for the rest of your life. So here's what Paul is showing us this morning. That in Christ, God began a new work in you, that he began it and he will finish it. God is making you more and more into the person that you will one day fully be. So therefore, let us desire this and participate in this good work. We're going to divide our time into three areas. We're going to look at gospel people, gospel partnership, and gospel progress. First, gospel people. The big idea here is this, that the gospel creates a people with a special identity. Now, does it make sense to you when I say that who you think you are um, affects how you live your life, right? So... If you think you're unattractive, you will live life in a certain way. If you think you're the smartest person in the room, you will live your life uh, in a certain way. Now, the gospel, in a good and healthy way, brings a new identity into your life that allows you to live in a certain way. Look at verse 1. Paul is writing here. says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Paul is addressing all of the Christians in Philippi as saints. Now, recently, in the last few weeks, the Vatican has officially given Mother Teresa the status of saint. And while she truly was a remarkable remarkable woman, she was a saint before she became a saint. <laughs> See, every Christian is a saint. The Greek word is hagios. It means to be set apart or declared holy. If you think back to the old tabernacle or the temple, there was all these instruments used in the cultic worship there, and they were just normal bowls, right? But by the sprinkling of water or blood, God said that that we're going to set these apart to make them hagios, to make them holy for use unto God's um, purposes. In a similar way, this is what God has done for his people. God sets people apart as his people, as holy unto him. And the proper word for that is is saints. It's not something that we do. We don't act holy in order to become saints. Did you see the words that Paul used? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. God, through the atoning sacrifice of his son, sets people apart as his own. You and I do not deserve this. We deserve God's disfavor for all the sins that we've committed. And yet, God, through Jesus, sprinkles us, cleanses us and, and through his blood and, and sets us apart as his own treasured people. So we need to know that the gospel has made us a new people. And we also need to stop thinking of our salvation as purely an um, in, in individu- individualistic Um, notions. God didn't save you so you can do your own thing. God saved you to be a part of his body, his his gospel people in the church. You are the saints in watermill who together serve Christ as we live out our kingdom purposes together. Listen to what one commentator, Moran Hooker, writes. He says, Christianity is primarily a calling to belong to a community. The church is not simply a group of individuals who happen to have responded to the gospel. It is the community of God's people whose corporate life is an essential expression of their divine calling. How does this challenge you? Christians, you see, like the church in Philippi, God has set you, set us apart to belong to him as his local body. I know some of you are probably thinking, Mark, you've got to say this. You're the pastor, you know, and this is Fall Family Fun Day, and everybody's here, and so you've got to have this really big push for people to be a part of the church, right? Part of that's true. Um, But no, the the reality is this. Um, It is in your best interest that you are part of a church. It's through the body of Christ that that God brings his special blessings to his people. And if you look at scripture and you study the Bible, all the way from Genesis 12 to the very end of the Bible, God has been saving people as his covenant community. We are being brought in to his gospel people. And in the New Testament era where we live, that gospel people is the church. So, this is how we're to see ourselves. Every Christian, from the greatest to the least, is a saint in Christ. It's a gift of God's grace. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reminds the Philippians, and we need the reminding as well, of the grace and peace that God has given them. And it comes as a gift. It's a costly peace, though. God sent his Son to live and to die to make atonement for our sin. For all who look to Christ as their Savior, God has laid on his own Son their transgressions. Every selfish thought, every bowing down to career or wealth or possessions, every turning of a blind eye to the needs of others, every mockery of the goodness of God, all of that and more, all of these things that we have done, God has laid our sin on Christ. Jesus took it and atoned for it. There's no way we can earn our peace with God. There's no way you and I can repay God for what he's done for us in Christ. No, peace with God either comes as a free gift from God that you open and receive by faith, or it never comes to you at all. Paul is reminding us of our status and how it came to us so that we would delight in our new identity, that we are gospel people. We belong now and forevermore to the set-apart people of God. My friends, think about it. There is no greater identity that you could ever possess. Christian, this is who you are. You are someone who's been set apart by God for his special purposes. May this fill you with joy. May you live today in light of this God-given identity. Now for gospel partnership. The big idea here is this. Because of our new identity, we we live now with a shared purpose and passion. The more mature we are in Christ, the more we live in gospel partnership. Now, the church in Philippi was mature in this area. Paul is like, rejoicing uh, over them in how they show their maturity here. Look at verses three to five. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is the, is the f- spiritual father uh, of these um, children in Philippi, and he's so proud of them. He prays with great joy over this young church. Why? Because they have demonstrated maturity in a very important way. They are partners together with Paul in the gospel. Remember, think about this. Paul brought them the gospel one day. He's the one who started that church. He planted it. They believed with great joy. And as Paul went around traveling around the Mediterranean, they supported him in that work. They saw it very important, uh, very, very important that, that the gospel go out, not just in Philippi, but all throughout the Mediterranean. Paul elaborates on how the, Philippine, uh, the Philippians participated in the gospel partnership. Verse 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers of me, uh, partakers with, grace, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Where is it that Paul is writing this joy-filled letter? He's in prison. Most likely in Rome. He will eventually plead his case before the court. It's a capital punishment case. He could um, die. Uh, And it's all about the gospel. Paul will have his chance to defend and confirm the gospel of Jesus Christ before the emperor. But for now, he's in prison. Now, back then, when you're in prison, the, the... Food wasn't provided for you. You depended upon the generosity of friends to to bring you food. The Philippians, because they were far away, they sent a large, generous uh, financial gift to Paul, and they sent it by uh, a Christian from Philippi named Epaphroditus. Their generous gift was evidence that they were partners in the gospel. See, though they could not be in Rome to be there to defend the gospel right alongside Paul. They participated, nonetheless, in that work. Can you picture that? By supporting Paul, they were ensuring the gospel was going out. Paul is—that's uh, what he's referring to when he says, "For you are all partakers with me of this grace." That's the way Paul refers to his calling. He refers to it as a grace that comes from God. So Paul helps us to see that it is an unlikely. Costly par- uh, par- partnership that is highly focused on one thing, seeing the gospel bear fruit. This partnership is unlikely. Do you remember the Tolkien's Lord of the Rings? Do you remember how unlikely all of these people were in the fellowship to like work together, right? Uh, the fellowship was comprised of hobbits and dwarves and elves and men. People who would in no way ever get along on earth were united for one select purpose to ensure that the ring did not fall into the wrong hands but instead would be destroyed in Mordor. So to the church. People who normally wouldn't care to fellowship together (laughs) do. And a perfect example of this is the church in Philippi. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. In a supernatural dream, Paul has a vision of a man standing in Macedonia, beckoning him to come with the gospel. So what does Paul do? He grabs some co-laborers and they head for Macedonia. The first place they they stay is an important Roman colony, Philippi. And he gathers a very unlikely fellowship. Luke um, tells us who some of the members of this early church were. Are you ready? One was a rich man female textile trader the other was a demon-possessed slave girl fortune teller and another was a suicidal prison guard (laughs) talk about unlikely fellowship there was little to bind them together by worldly standards but they had one thing in common they had a partnership in the gospel So, too, here at Grace Presbyterian Church, let's be honest, uh, though our church is full of friendly people, we would not all love for each other and care for each other if there was not this partnership that we share in the gospel. We have one thing that unites us. It is Christ and his call upon our lives. Paul shows us that this gospel partnership is also costly and highly focused. You know, there's some professions that center around partnerships, law firms, accounting firms, medical practices, architectural firms. If you're a lawyer, architect, doctor, or accountant, you begin as an associate, It's like a regular employee, and it's only after years of proving your worth that you can one day make partner, and that's a big deal, but it's also costly and requires a high focus. I have a friend of mine who's becoming a partner in a large eye practice, and as with most partnerships, she has to buy her way into the practice. What's the cost? Over a million dollars Being a partner is costly but it also demands a singular focus. Guess what? No more moonlighting. <laughs> no more just putting in the hours and pulling a paycheck. If you've made partner, then you are responsible for the daily overseeing of the success of the business. Partnership is costly and demands a laser focus. So too with gospel partnership. Christians, we now live and belong to Christ. He is our Lord. We live for him. This is what Paul means when he begins his letter with Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, the word servant here is an actual translation of the Greek word doulos. um, And it would have shocked Paul's early readers there. um, But for different reasons than it might shock us. When the Philippians heard the word doulos, they had in their mind slavery. That's what the word means, a slave. Now, remember that slavery in Paul's day, though not commendable, was not the same slavery um, as dis- that despicable practice that took place in our country so many years ago. You know, in, um, in the ancient Greek and Roman world, there were three ways in which you could become a slave. One was to be captured in battle. The other was to owe a debt. And the third way was you sell yourself into slavery. In ancient Corinth, at least one-third the population there were douloi, slaves. There's no such thing as a blue-collar labor force. But most douloi slaves were able to earn their or receive their freedom by the time they reached middle age. So there's stark differences between slavery in America and the slavery in the Greco-Roman world. But there's also some commonalities. Perhaps you can imagine them. See, a slave belongs to his lord or his master. The slave's life is bound up in the work of his master. The slave makes decisions in light of his or her lord's uh, will. A mature Christian sees himself or herself the way Paul does. See, we belong to Christ. He is our lord and our master. We live to honor him and to please our heavenly father. Like Paul's words that finish out our passage, we live to the glory and the praise of God. And so we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we don't just make ourselves available for that one hour on Sunday morning and perhaps a few hours of service throughout the month. Jesus is our Lord, He is not our boss. We don't call Him our advisor or our coach. He is our Lord, He is our master. We belong 100% to him. His goals become our goals. His purposes become our purposes. His means become our means. There's no such thing as a $3 worth of gospel. You either belong wholly and fully to Christ, or you do not belong at all. There is no middle ground. Mature Christians understand this. More than that, mature Christians delight in this with great joy. Ask yourself Am I a partner in the gospel? Have I united myself to a local church where I can use my gifts and talents? Have I united myself in a costly, focused way? Ask yourself, do I compartmentalize my life? Do I, do I count my service hours and cap, it when, cap my service when I become tired? Or am I truly a slave of Christ who delights in serving Christ? You see, the more we soak in the gospel, the more we come to understand what God has done for us in Christ Jesus and what he continues to do for us in Christ Jesus. And then the more mature we become in how we live in gospel partnership as slaves of Christ. Now for gospel progress. The big idea in this section is this. If you want to get your finger on the pulse of how well things are going as you're maturing as a Christian, look for progress in this one area. Look at how you love. That's what Paul is focusing on at the end of our passage. Look at the first part of verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. My friends, the litmus test of gospel maturity isn't how many Bible verses you have memorized. It isn't how lock tight your theology is. The litmus test isn't whether you disciple other Christians or serve on some important team or meet with men once a week to study the Bible. The litmus test of Christian maturity is love. Does your life manifest a Christ-like love? Paul prays that the church in Philippi would abound in love more and more. May that be our prayer, too. May love abound in our fellowship. And did you notice in Paul's wording, he makes it pretty clear that that love just isn't so much an emotion that that comes into our lives depending upon favorable circumstances. Um, Paul describes love as a habit. He says it must abound more and more. Love is an action, like getting regular exercise. Love is a habit that we need to work into our lives, and the more of a habit love becomes in our lives, the more that love abounds. I was talking to a friend the other day who was confiding that he he needs to um, drop a few pounds and, and lower his cholesterol and but he really doesn't like the idea of getting back into running. <laughs> Perhaps some of you can sympathize with him. He knows, though, that if he just commits to running three times a week for a month, then he'll get to the point where he actually likes to run. It becomes easier. And in fact, those of you who experienced this, your your body actually begins to crave it, right? I gotta run. I feel like my legs need to run, my lungs need to run. Paul says that love is similar. To abound in love, we must put love into practice more and more. And at a certain point, a habit gets formed. See, loving is hard, especially if you're committed to love like Christ. Christ loved unlovely people. So, to you and I, we're called to love difficult people, people who will lie to you, people who don't seem to want to change, people who will not appreciate you no matter what, people who take you for granted. It's hard to love. But as you love more and more, it can become easier and even more enjoyable. See, as your love abounds more and more, you'll come to see that Christ encourages you and he fills you with all the joy and strength that you need to abound in love. Remember what the text says, that God has begun a good work in you and he will continue it on. God wants you to experience the joy of being able to love others in a Christ-like manner. Paul goes on to say something that really challenges the way of our culture. Paul tells us in so many words that love isn't blind. (laughs) At least it shouldn't be. Paul's prayer in verse 9 is that love may abound more and more with what? With warm, fuzzy feelings? With really cool, sweet emojis? No, he says with knowledge and discernment. It doesn't seem like that goes with love, but it does, and it must. Knowledge and discernment so that you may, one, approve of what is excellent, and so, be two, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. My friends, genuine love does not turn a blind eye to our sin or to the sins of others. What some people think is love is really selfish codependency. But if you really love that friend of yours who's gone down a road of recklessness, you will not applaud them. You won't say, as you so often hear, well, it's her life. Who am I to judge? No, the gospel gives us both a calling and an ability to confront others in love. Within the church, this is really critical. The church, we are the set-apart people of God. And we affirm that God has called us to a certain standard of holiness in, in, in lives that please Him. The problem is we're all works in progress. I stand before you as one who has a lot of work left to do. (laughs) I think I probably need to live to be 170 if God is ever to get anywhere close to the work he wants to do in Mark Middlecoff. And so we need each other so that we can become more Christ-like. You cannot mature alone (laughs) in this regard. We need each other. You and I need fellow Christians who love us enough to tell us things we don't want to hear. We need fellow Christians to speak the truth to us in love. We're often blind to our own failings, right? I'm not the only one, am I? All right, wives, nudge your husbands. That's what you like to do right about here. And isn't it true, even if we are aware of our own failings... We would rather ignore them than work on them. We would rather make excuses than confess. We would rather become defensive than appreciative. Do you see that tendency in yourself? So how is it that we can become a church that's mature in this area? By making gospel progress. The gospel brings a love into our lives that allows us to be vulnerable as Christians. In verse 11, Paul talks about how this gets worked into into us. Paul says what? It is with the fruit of righteousness. Look at that, guy. verse 11. It is with the fruit of righteousness that comes, not of our own strength, but what? Through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Our identity as Christians is that we are people who have been made righteous by Christ. Whatever righteousness we have has been given to us. And and the thought of this must humble us. (laughs) We know that we will always be sinners saved by grace. We know that. Nobody's telling us something new. And we know that God still has much more to do in us. And so in light of of what God has done for us and the grace that he has given us, we don't get defensive when other people kindly point out our shortcomings. We come to know that people are actually loving us well when they do so. And when they do, where do we go? Back to the cross. The cross that reminds us that our righteousness was never generated by ourselves anyway. (laughs) A cross that allows us to once and for all really take an honest assessment of who we are. Now, how does the cross allow you to do that? The cross allows you to do that because when you come to the cross, you are reminded of the mercy that you have received and the ongoing mercy that you need each and every day from Christ. You know that in Christ you have a splendid record of righteousness and it is all owed to him and so you don't have to defend yourself or get out of whack or um but rather you 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 can easily say you know you're right i'm a sinner saved by grace thank you that i have a wonderful savior who's done this for me and i do want to grow in holiness and thank you for pointing that out and by god's grace i will it changes the way in which we live gospel people live differently than the rest of the world Um, We have the freedom and the capacity and ability to look at ourselves with great honesty, but also with great hope and joy. I hope you see that. You know, there's a lot of churches where people just fake it. They come every week, just put on smiling faces. So long as you smile and say how blessed you are, you can get by there. May Grace Church never turn into one of those places. May we continue to make gospel progress in how we live and how we love each other and care for each other and how we spur one another on towards what is excellent and pure and blameless. This is the good work that God is doing in us. May we delight in that. May we make it our own. May we walk in it by God's grace and the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this work that you've begun, that you've set us apart. Um, We are gospel people, and we share a gospel partnership. And um, we know that in you, you work a gospel progress in us. We pray, Father, that we would delight in what you've done for us. We ask that you would speed up this process of maturation. Um, help us all the more to look at ourselves and um, with eyes of faith and uh, to see at the cross where our mercy and righteousness comes from. And um, May we walk in the grace that you've shown us. We long for the day to see Christ face to face. Until then, uh, grow us. May we abound in love all the more, we pray. Amen.